Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. I'm really glad to be with you guys this weekend. Uh, one quick clarification about community group signups, especially for those of you who were in groups in the fall. Uh, you don't need to sign up brand new. However, we do need you, if you haven't already done it, to reply to Lester's email so he can make sure and know that if you wanted to be in another group. If you didn't respond, uh, he would have had to remove you from the group. So if you don't want to be removed, uh, please make sure you respond to Lester's email so we can get these community groups on and popping. All right, let me pray for us before we get into today's message. Uh, Father, our highest desire is that we would uh, learn more about who you are and even more important than knowledge. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we would deepen our relationship with you today. Lord, I pray that uh, this time would be something that you would give us eyes to see and ears to, to hear and a heart to receive your words for our life. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this past week, in between about 73 episodes of Sesame Street, I was able to squeeze in uh, a four-part documentary on Netflix called The Pharmacist. Uh, the Pharmacist is a pretty great documentary on Netflix. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to give out any spoilers. Uh, but the, the documentary is about a guy who's a pharmacist, and he ends up on a crusade to solve uh, an unsolved murder uh, of his son. His son had gotten addicted to drugs and was finding himself in some pretty terrible neighborhoods in New Orleans in search of these drugs, and one night he was tragically killed. One of the most interesting things about the documentary is they spoke so much about addiction. And this father, who himself was a pharmacist, had an addicted son in his own house under his own roof, and he didn't notice it. Addiction is often hard to spot and even uh, and really, really easy to misunderstand. This same guy, the pharmacist, ends up, after helping to solve his son's mur murder, uh, ends up on a crusade to go after Big Pharma and the makers of OxyContin. And it's a really great documentary. I recommend that you, that you watch it. But it got me thinking a lot about just this concept of addiction, and I think so many people really, really misunderstand it. And certainly in the church, we've spoken about it in some really misinformed and uh, hurtful ways at times. Addiction is not just for like certain types of people. They're not like, oh, you can get addicted, but I can't. Addiction can happen to anyone. Uh, an addiction could be for drugs, it could be for a substance, it could be for a behavior. Uh, where it's a compulsion. It's not something that you can just say, hey, you should stop doing that. It's much bigger and deeper than that. Uh, one thing that I read about it was that an addiction is a behavior uh, that's uh, addictive only if the rewards it brings are, the rewards it brings now are eventually outweighed by damaging consequences later. So there are some compulsions that we have, things that we have to do, like breathe right? Uh, you're not addicted to breathing because there's no damaging rewards for doing it. But when there are things that we do in our life that uh, we feel forced to do, even if it brings us damaging consequences later, this is what uh, many experts would say classify as an addiction. Addictions are really powerful because they take root inside of you before they are visible on the outside. In other words, by the time, by the time you can notice it, it's already deeply entrenched itself. When it takes root, it takes over the person's entire life. It makes them make decisions to, to go after that thing or that behavior, even if they get hurt in the process. 
And addiction causes us to keep doing things even though we know it's bad and it will cause you problems. Uh, recovery from addiction is not simply about knowing something new or knowing something different. It's an entire process that needs to happen in your life, uh, the road to recovery. Now today, I want to talk about something that is much better understood as an addiction than simply a behavior because of the way that it entrenches itself in our life and pervades our entire existence. And it's a, an addiction that every single person in this room has. It's the addiction for approval, the desire to be known and recognized and approved of by, by other people. One of the most damaging things about an approval addiction is that it makes you do stuff to get it. And one thing that I have found personally in my own life is that it is absolutely impossible for you to live to hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant, for, to live for God's well done when you're living for the good opinion of other people. It's impossible for you to live for God's well done when you're living for the good approval of other people, the good opinion of, of others. Now, the uncomfortable truth is that we all have an audience in mind. When we get dressed, when we go to work, when we buy that new cologne or perfume, uh, we all have a crowd and an audience in our mind that we're trying to gain their approval. All of us want to be known for something, and we all want to be approved of by somebody. My somebody is not your somebody, and your somebody is not my somebody. But we all want to be approved of uh, for, for something, and we all want to have the good opinion of someone. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about addiction is that there are signs leading up to it. And I got a couple of signs that you and I might be addicted to uh, approval. And tell me if any of these resonate in your life. Uh, number one is you want to make yourself impressive. Uh, I call my wife the well actually police because uh, whenever I'm telling a story, she'll be like, well, actually, it didn't really happen like that. I'm like, don't let some facts get in the way of a good story. I was running a four-minute mile, and when I was uh, on the way, I uh, stopped and got some Popeyes. That's what happened. Uh, we, we do things to make ourselves feel impressive. And it's so common and so pervasive that it happens without you even notice that you're doing it. Uh, this happened last night. Um, we were hanging out with some friends at our place, and their kids were there, our kids were there. And at the end of the night, we had some gummies to give to the kids. And Aswan, uh, one of the pastors here, said, hey, uh, you can get gummies once you spell the word. And the other kids started spelling the word really fast. I was like, slow down. Jameson's going to get it in a second. Calm down. Stop showing off. Uh, Jameson, your turn. Be quiet. Uh, Jameson, please go. And I was like, gummies, gut. What, what does that sound, buddy? I started pinching him under the table to get it. I didn't pinch him. I kicked him, but I didn't pinch him. <laughs> But I was embarrassed that he wasn't getting it as fast because it's making me look like a, like a bad dad, right? I want to be impressive as a father. I want to do good things. And I didn't even notice that I was doing it. I was feeling inferior for something that has nothing to do with anything, but yet it's something that's so deeply rooted in our lives that it just happens in a, in a life in an instant. Uh, another thing that we do is we run away from criticism. A lot of us have failed to make difficult decisions or fail to take a stand on certain things, or we fail to do certain things, just because we don't want the criticism that will come our way if we were to do it. We have a hard time saying no to people. You fill your calendar with things that you have no business doing, because God forbid 
you say no to your third cousin's karate tournament, what's going to happen to you? Will people reject you? Will people think less of you if you don't just say yes to everything? We feel guilty or stressed if we do something that other people don't approve of. Uh, so we don't want people to know certain parts of our life, even if they're good things about us, because we, don't, we fear the rejection of other people uh, if they don't approve of our actions. And I've seen this one paralyze so many people. In their brain, they know what's right to do, but then the crowd starts uh, appearing in their head, and they wonder, what will these people think if I do this? And as a result, they don't go through with it. Uh, number five, you fear rejection and, uh, and conflict. You run away from conversations that you desperately need to have because, God forbid, that you'll be disapproved of. Number six, your free time is filled up with the needs of other people, so you're always the person that people call when it's time to move uh, because you'll just never say no to anything. Side note, I'm not the moving friend, right? <laughs> like, there's different kinds of friend. If, you're, if you have, like, the moving friend, uh, they may or may not be addicted to your approval, or they might just be really great people, but uh, I'm not that. And uh, last one is uh, you equate someone's disapproval of you with something being wrong with you. Now, sometimes their disapproval of you is because you did do something wrong. But it doesn't just stop at I did something wrong. Their disapproval of me feels like there's something wrong with me. Like their disapproval of what I have done feels internally like there is something fundamentally wrong and broken uh, about me. And if any of these things are true, and the list could go, long, uh, go on and on and on, these might be signs that we are addicted to approval. Now, before we get too far down the road, I do want to make two quick disclaimers um, to make sure you're, you're, you're not hearing me say something. I am not saying that other people's opinions of you don't matter. I'm absolutely not saying that. I have met way too many jerks who just behave under the umbrella that nobody else's opinion of me matters. Other people's opinion, opinion of you does matter for sure. It just shouldn't control you. Like, other people's opinions of you are a good thing, but like anything, a good thing can be misused and misplaced to occupy too large of a space in your life that it controls you. Throughout the scripture, it tells us of the value of having a good name and a good reputation and to have good opinions of you. Uh, in Proverbs 22 and 1, it says, a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. If you had a choice of no student loans and a lot of money in the bank account or a good name, it says, take the good name. That's how valuable it is. There's another scripture where Paul is talking, and Paul is an apostle. He wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament, and he's talking to a group of people, and he says, uh, we're taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. So they were handling a large pool of money, and Paul says, indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. Right? So it does matter what people think of us. We should not let our good be evil spoken of. There is a deep value in living a life that is considerate of other people, but it shouldn't control us. Another thing that I found is that a lot of people think that this is like an issue that you can deal with once in life and then grow out of. And then you'll hit a point in spiritual maturity where you no longer have to face this approval addiction, and that's also just not true. 
There will never be a point in your life, there will never be a point in your spiritual journey where you are not susceptible to succumbing to uh, an approval addiction. We see this in the life of Peter. Peter was another guy uh, called an apostle in the New Testament, and apostles were people who walked with Jesus. And um, Peter was one of Christianity's most influential leaders, and we see him in Scripture getting pulled away from Jesus, from following Jesus faithfully, not because of something, an earthquake that happened, but just because he was swayed by other people's opinions. This is how dope Peter was in his life. Peter was a guy who preached the first sermon to the early church. His sermon was so profound and so Holy Spirit-filled that 3,000 people came up running saying, Peter, what must I do to be saved? God used him that much. In his life, it didn't stay that way. Uh, Later, you see Peter having this, this challenge. That once upon a time, Peter used to treat everybody the same because this is, what, this is what Jesus told him to do. Don't separate people based on Jews and Gentiles. In the early Christian church, there was a group of people who were referred to as the Jews and a group of people who were the Gentiles. So it's like, um, if you were not a Jew, you were a, a Gentile. So like everything that is not a Jew is um, a Gentile. It's like people who are from the city. It's like everything north of the Bronx is upstate which is highly offensive, by the way. <laughs> so Peter gets this warning. He says, don't treat people differently based on dietary restrictions. Don't do it, Peter. Jesus comes to Peter in a vision. and says, Peter, do not treat people differently based on whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. We are all one in Christ. Don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. What do we see Peter do in Galatians A man named Paul, the the guy Paul comes up to Peter and says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men. Before this crowd came from James, and this is a Jewish group of people. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? What's happening? Paul comes to Peter and says, Peter, even though you have walked with Jesus, even though you have seen Jesus perform miracles, even though God has used you powerfully in life, even though you have gotten a vision from Jesus, you're deviating from the truth. What caused him to deviate, to go aside, to go astray from the truth? It was this group of people who he wanted their good opinion of him. The Bible gives us this warning in Peter, who is a pillar of the church, that he is not immune and neither are you and I. And we're told this about Peter to warn us that even if you met Jesus, even if you walked next to Jesus for years, even if Jesus came to you in a vision tonight, you and I are still susceptible to being led astray and pulled away from God's will for our lives based on the opinions of other people. It is that strong of a thing. One of the worst things you can do is underestimate something or underestimate an opponent. And we're we're warned in Scripture against this so we don't underestimate the power that approval and affirmation of other people have and can have in our lives. 
So we've been in the book of John for the last number of months, and we're walking through it slowly to hopefully draw out some really powerful principles and teachings from Jesus and observe the life of Jesus so that you and I can walk in a way that is honoring and is growing and is maturing to be a follower of Jesus. And we're starting in John at the end of John 6, and then we're going to go to John 7, and we're going to go to look at Jesus, someone who is absolutely free from this approval addiction. And we're going to look at him and his life. We're going to see what uh, motivated Jesus and his methods that would lead us towards freedom as well. It starts in verse 66 at the end of John 6. And it says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer uh, followed him. So let me catch you guys up. Uh, this is when Jesus is preaching a sermon. And there are thousands and thousands of people here listening to Jesus preach. At this point, he has thousands of people who consider themselves disciples of Jesus. At the end of this sermon, they all turn, except for 12 of them, and they leave. Now, word gets to his brothers and to other people, and this, from the outside, looks like a horrendous ministry failure, right? If you came to Renaissance next Sunday, and there was 12 people in one row, you would walk in and then walk right out, like something, I don't know what happened, but something happened. It's like when you go in an empty car in the subway, you're like, nah, I'm not getting that joint. I don't know what happened, but something happened. I'm not going on. So it continues, and it says, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. Listen to what they advise him to do. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do those things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Now, Jesus shows us what it means to be free from the addiction of approval here. Uh, it's coming right off of the heels of what would have been seen as a great ministry failure. And his brothers come to Jesus with a way to redeem himself in the eyes of people. Jesus, I've seen some of the stuff you do. It's kind of legit. If you want to build back your name, if you want to get this approval back, go to Judea. Nobody does this stuff in secret. If they're seeking public recognition, Jesus is not seeking after public recognition. Jesus' his motivation was something far different than that. Jesus knew and Jesus shows us that he did not need to be known and approved of other people. Listen, approval and affirmation are, are good things. One of the things that I've, I've learned over the years is how malformed our communities and friendships and relationships are because we don't affirm people enough. We think that people will get a big head if we say something kind to them. That's completely untrue. Most of us are running on an affirmation deficit. We need approval. We need affirmation. These are good things, but they can't be this, the thing that you build your life on. God has given some people the gift of encouragement. Use that gift. You can't use it enough. However, none of us can live. None of us can feast. None of us can rest our souls 
on the approval and the affirmation of other people, the recognition of other people to sustain our souls. Uh, it, our souls are so much bigger and deeper than that. We need something far greater than that. When we do that, what ends up happening is we imprison ourselves to everyone because we're always having a crowd in mind. So we're never really free people. Eugene Peterson says it like this. He says, we perform in order to get approval. A life of performance, a life of show, a life of achievement. And of course, it imprisons us because someone is always watching. It makes us into calculating people, not free people, calculating what my actions will produce in others. What will they think of me? Do I fit into what others expect? This is not freedom. Freedom is coming into every moment, every situation, every room with the reality of already being loved accepted, and approved. This is what we see in the life of Jesus. He comes into this situation with his brothers where they're advising him to do some big show and to go and seek public recognition. Jesus knows that he is already loved, accepted, and approved by the Father. They are one. He doesn't need approval from anyone else. Uh, there's another part of actually of the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about another reason why he doesn't accept human approval that way because he knows there's something that's, that's tainted about it. In John 2 and 24, it, Jesus, it says of Jesus, it says that he would not, him he would not entrust himself to them since he knew them, uh, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about him, for he himself knew what was in humankind. He knew that there was something inside of all of us that it couldn't be trusted, our praise, our adoration. It, there's, there's a piece of it that's, real and sincere, but he knew that that couldn't be the foundation for his life. He knew that it was tainted. One of the things that I've been stunned by is why people accept food from the hands of a nasty child. When my son was like one years old, he was very cute, and he would like pass people a half-eaten bagel, and then I would see someone reaching for it. I would run across a room in slow motion, dive and slap it out of their hand, like, do not, under any circumstances, eat that, because I know where his hands have been. I've seen him scratching his thighs during the diaper change. You do not want that thing that was in his hand. Trust me. What Jesus is saying is that the human praise that we search after, it's tainted. It can't support you. Again, God does use encouragement as a gift and affirmation as a gift to, to help us, but it can't be the thing that we live off of. Another aspect that Jesus would so often refer to is the temporary nature of human praise, that it's not something that we could, um, how short-lasting it is. It's not something we can base our lives on. Uh, one of the quotes that I've heard in life that has stuck with me over the years is that one day, all of us are going to die and that's an encouraging thought. Uh, and then they're going to eat potato salad at your funeral. I don't know, care what your culture is. One day you're going to die and they're going to eat potato salad at your funeral. And then in a couple of generations, nobody's going to remember you. How many people in here know your great, great grandparents' names? This is your family. We have like three people who know their great grandparents' names. The more the generations that go by, the less we know of even our own family. What is this telling us? One day, nobody's going to remember you. Somebody might remember your name, but they're not going to remember anything else about you. Why would you live for the approval of something that's not going to last? Scripture says that all of us are like grass. 
passing away. The grass withers and it blows away into the wind. There's a short-lasting nature to public recognition. I've seen this personally. A couple of years ago, I saw some tweets that brought deep grief to my soul. It was during the Super Bowl a couple of years ago when Missy Elliott came out for the halftime performance, and people said, who is this new artist? <laughs> my soul. <laughs> Deeply hurt. I remembered me dancing in front of the mirror in 1997 to I Can't Stand the Rain. <laughs> and as profound and as dope as Missy Elliott was, she's already forgotten. One day, even if you got the most human praise in the world, they're going to forget about you. Don't live for something that's not going to last. So Jesus shows us what it means to be free of this approval, or this prison of approval, and knew that he was loved and accepted and approved by the Father. So his methods were he was never in a rush. He was never beholden to what other people said he had to do. His focus was on something far, far different. This past year, my wife and I uh, were in a mentoring group with a, a couple, uh, Pete and Jerry Scazzaro, and they wrote a book called uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and it's one of the few books that have, I recommend uh, to everyone, and it's, it's changed my life completely. During the mentoring group, um, Jerry Scazzaro, um, she asked a question, and man, it's stuck with me ever since. One thing that she would do every single day is, at the end of her day, she would go to her journal and she would ask herself this question, what have I done today to either avoid the disapproval of some people or to gain the approval of others? And she would start to write down all of the things that she did to either gain the approval of someone or to avoid the disapproval of someone. It's a very humbling exercise. I've done it. When I start to notice the time where I didn't say what I really believed and felt just because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to, I didn't want to cause uh, I didn't want to cause any discomfort. I didn't want to get rejected by anybody. The times where I've kind of said yes and I've squeezed something in just because I didn't want to say no are the times when I've laughed at something that, you know, wasn't funny or just to, just to gain the approval or to avoid the disapproval of people. And this could be a really healthy way for you to start to see how big this is in your life, how much you're doing just to gain the approval of people or to avoid their disapproval. So Jesus was never in a rush. He, not swayed by other people's opinions. And I want to kind of point us to a couple of things that we can do on the road to recovery. Again, this is not just do something different tomorrow. This is a lifelong battle that we have, that we have to employ certain things and certain parameters that will keep us from falling into their trap of seeking other people's approval. And three things that I think we need to do. Number one is we need to focus on our mission. Why are you here? What is the purpose of your life? What do you hope to gain out of all of this? The past couple of uh, months, I've seen how easily distracted I get sometimes, and I lose focus of my mission. Uh, there's a big thing about what happens at 7 o'clock in the morning when I first come to, to church on the Sundays that I'm preaching. A lot of days, I'll come in, and I'll run right in the back, in the back room to go through my sermon, to comb through all of the details, to memorize different sentences, to make sure that everything has been well studied and there's a, there's a value in studying. I think that's a great thing. But there's another piece of me that focuses so much on that just because I want to do a good job and I want people to approve of me. There's other times, uh, like in the last number of months, where I just come in at 7 o'clock and I sit in the audience and I just pray. 
And I think about the mission that God has given us here at Renaissance. Our goal is to connect people to Jesus Christ and to each other. If that happens, great. If they don't laugh at the jokes, who cares? In those Sundays, when I'm not grounded in a mission, to be perfectly honest, I need to do a good job so I'll feel okay about myself. I need to be liked. I need to, 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 to tie every sentence or else I'll go home and I'm rehearsing the sermon over and over and over again and how I didn't say this the way I wanted to say it. And I completely lose focus of everything. And the best thing that grounds us is to focus on your mission. Why do you exist? What is your purpose? If you are a Christian, and this one applies to the Christians in the room, your mission is that your life will bring God glory. If this is your mission, should you choose to accept it, watch how many things don't bother you anymore. If your mission is to be liked and to be approved of, then everything is going to bother you. If your mission is to, get a, to win a good reputation, you'll always be in the courtroom of other people's opinions. The number one thing I think we're called to do over and over and over again is to focus on our mission. Why are you here? And that's to bring God glory with our lives. Uh, the second thing that I think we need to do is we need to fill ourselves with God's love. Fill ourselves with God's love. Now, turning away from the need for human approval only gets us so far, right? Learning about this and feeling convicted about uh, being uh, someone who's needing other people's approval, that's like a really great start to it, but we need something else to fill the void in our lives. The truth is that God has made us for affirmation and approval. The bigger truth behind that is that it's not their approval, but it's his approval. And if we are to be people who are uh, on, the, on this road to recovery, uh, we need to fill ourselves with something else. A couple of months ago, or last year, I went to the doctor and got you know, some pretty scary news about my blood pressure getting high. And I started, it runs in my family, and I've just seen what it's done to men in my family, and I started to get nervous that if I continued on the trend that I was on, I was gonna need blood pressure medicine. And I'm like, man, I can't, I don't wanna put my, myself through that. So I really set out to lose some weight, get my blood pressure down, and I got on this new nutrition thing. I started eating better. And our office is situated right around the corner from Shake Shack. The devil is a liar. So we'd be in the office and people would be saying like, hey, I'm going to Shake Shack, does anybody want anything? And my hand would just start shaking as soon as I said that. <laughs> the best bet for me to avoid Shake Shack was to be full on something that's better. I would go to the microwave, take my, my meal prep food out, throw that joint in the microwave, eat it as fast as I could, so that when the request for Shake Shack came around, I was already full. And it's way easier to say no when you're already full. A lot of us, we want to we wanna be free from the need for human approval, but we're not filling ourselves with God's love. And if, if we're not doing that, it's impossible. You want to hear some of the, like the, you know, deep down inside, we want to be approved of, we want to be accepted, we want to be loved. And a lot of us, we look at ourselves and we say, well, God, with my life the way it is, as sometimey as I am, I don't see how you can love, accept, and approve me based on me. The beauty of Christian theology is it doesn't teach that it's about you at all. It teaches something called justification by faith. That to be in Christ, we are regarded in the same way that Christ is regarded. To be justified by faith means we come to God. And when we come to God, God approves of us, accepts us, loves us, adores us, not based on you, but because of him. 
I went to college in Baltimore, and uh, when I was there from 99 to 2003, it was the murder capital, the AIDS capital, AIDS capital, and the illiteracy capital of the country. And, you know, if you've ever seen The Wire, you know how rough Baltimore was. I was hanging out with some of my friends, my roommates, and uh, they said, yo, some of my people are from New York um, in town. Let's go connect with them. I'm thinking, great. So we hop in my friend's car, and he takes us to some straight The Wire neighborhood. And I was like, Lord Jesus, if you get me out of here, I'm going to church tomorrow. And I was absolutely terrified. And the whole time I was standing there, I was good because my man had the hood pass. Now, we are a diverse crowd. A hood pass is, <laughs> is when someone has a name recognition in the neighborhood and that people respect them, approve of them being there just because of what they have done. Now, my man had the hood pass. And I was good in that neighborhood, not because of me. If someone would have came up to me, I would have just threw them my wallet, like, here you go. Just take it. The pin is 1632. Please, I'll walk you to the bank. It wasn't up to me, though. It was up to someone else. I was justified, not because of me, but because of them, because of what they had done in that neighborhood. Christian theology teaches that we are justified by faith, that your standing with God is not resting on you. It rests on the perfect Christ. And you are approved, loved, uh, adored because of Jesus Christ. We need to fill ourselves with God's love and let God's words wash over us. That leads us to the third point of scripture meditation. Uh, our souls need the words of God spoken over and over our lives again and again and again. Jesus tells us in Matthew 4 that man, humans, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that we need it, our souls need it. In the same way that we need food and sustenance, our souls are, are aching and hungry for God's word to be spoken over our lives. This is how we fill ourselves with God's love. And I want to end us today with a meditation to, to read over your lives that would fill us with God's love and God's care and his concern for us, that would hopefully free us from this pursuit of other people's approval. It comes to us from Psalm 139. The author says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. Day by day, we need God's words to, to wash over our, our lives, to speak to us, to let us know that he is with us. His presence circles us. His hand holds on to us. Let me pray for us. God, our good Father, help us to be more and more assured of your presence with us, your deep commitment to us, and your approval of us through Christ. God, help us not to try to stand on our own two feet, on our own merit, but to be free recipients of the gift of grace that Jesus gives us. So, Father, fill us with your love. Help us to be secure in that, in that alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.